writer's tricks of the trade. I'm Morgan St. James, and my co-host Eric James Miller and I welcome our guest tonight, Matt Palomari. He's the author of 10 books ranging from cerebral to visceral, and after 25 years of presenting workshops relative to dramatic writing at writers' conferences, like the prestigious Santa Barbara Writers' Conference and the Southern California Writers' Conference, just to name a two, he wrote his award-winning book, Fantastic Fiction, and that's spelled P-H-A-N-T-A-S-T-I-C, A Shamanic Approach to Story. Okay, hi, Matt. Hey, so the, hi, title, the title alone of your book is provocative, and, and I can't wait to hear what you, what you have to share with us. But first, let me give a little background for our listeners. Um, taking a look at the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it defines a shaman as someone who is believed in some cultures to be able to use magic to cure people who are sick, to control future events, things like that. So let's get right into how you chose that title, Matt, and how it relate, relates to shamanism. Um, we, we, let's, we'll get into your professional background a little later on the show. I understand that you've visited jungles and mountains and the deserts of North and South and even Central America, right, pursuing your studies um, of, I mean, you're, you're looking into shamanism and ancient cultures. Is that what led you to a magical approach to story? It's uh, all paths lead to Rome in in some ways, and it's where the the paths came together. Initially, uh, I've been studying shamanism most of my life, and shamans were the first storytellers, performing artists, teachers, healers, psychiatrists, artists, the whole thing. And so in that way, they were sort of, in many ways, the first um, creative people. One uh, definition of shamanism is mastering energy. And um, all fiction and all writing has a particular kind of energy. So when you learn to do, to master those energies and master using words and things like that to create story or to convey a message, then you, th- those are the they're actually in a shamanic worldview uh the magical that's where the magic is is creating a reality by doing that so um i started teaching horror fantasy and science fiction workshop at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference um 25 years ago and then um as the turn of the millennium the most recent turn of century came uh, I started seeing more spiritual, new age kind of things in my workshop. And I thought about ghosts and magic and shamanism and came up with the whole idea of fantastic fiction with a PH, which comes from phantasm, which you know means ghost or spirit. So um, I put it into that. But, uh, but at the core of it all is uh, one of the primary things of shamanism is the shaman's journey into the underworld. And in the shaman's journey into the underworld, he gets, a, depending on the culture, they're all the same in different ways, but he gets dismembered, he dies and is reborn. The whole uh, myth of the phoenix, you know, turning to ash and fire and, and being reborn, that's what the shaman does. In, in South American shamanism, they call it facing the jaguar, where you have to face your worst fears and get swallowed by that. Hmm. 
that. It's, that it, it's well, just one That's more all pretty yeah. fascinating, Matt. Um, it's, it's the you know, I wanted to talk about your book, Land of Evil. Uh, it's a oh. historical novel about the first meeting between the shamans and the Jesuits in the 19th century South America. And from what I understand, it won a San Diego Book Award for mainstream fiction, and it was also chosen as a reading group choices selection. After that, it was adapted into a full-length stage and sky show, by Austin Sky Candy and Agent Red, and it was the subject of a PBS series, Art and Content. That episode was nominated for an Emmy. That must have been so exciting. How did that all come about? Well, um, I got approached by the producer director, and she was very impressed by the book. She goes by Agent Red, and she uh, is a world-class aerialist, and she had fallen and had a horrible accident where she broke her wrists and her ankles and broke her head in three places and she really thought she was finished and when she read the story she was very inspired by it and she wanted to uh, do the show around it so there wasn't a lot of uh, money involved but there was a lot of passion and I, I got involved with it and had the most uh, one of the probably the highlight of my whole uh, creative writing career watching the show and then they made a show about the making of the show for a PBS series, which is actually Arts in Context, about collaboration in the arts. And that show was nominated for an Emmy. So we had a really wonderful time. Musicians, aerialists, uh, dancers, singers, um, video projection, lots of wonderful aerial feats with amazing costumes and lighting, and 50 people all dedicated to telling the story. It was amazing. Cool. Kind of sounds like a um, your own personal Cirque du Soleil show. Exactly. It looked in, it just the same. Yeah. It was. Cool. It was wonderful. Well, your work is a combination of fiction and nonfiction, and so for our fiction writing listeners, what tips can you offer to create what you call fantastic fiction? And again, that's fantastic with a ph instead of an f implying phantasmagorical. How, how are these deviate, deviations, um, how, are the, yeah, how are these deviations from the normal paths that writers take? Well, truth of it is, is, especially with writers, there's no such thing as a normal path. That's what I would say. That. <laughs> right, that's true. Uh, and you can say that. Like trying to find a normal writer, right? Maybe I should say typical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, our paths lead to wrong. This the shamanism and the fantastic fiction gets into the core of what of what story is, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Before everything got developed, when when storytelling was literally oral tradition, um, which is one of the things they did, the heart of that was the um, journey into the underworld, where they got transfigured and transformed and and reborn. That is the core and the essence of the hero's journey. That is the hero's journey, which, for those who don't know, um, Joseph Campbell was, in my humble opinion, the world's greatest mythologist, and he wrote a wonderful book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is the essence of what a story is. And if you study every story, every element that he has in there are in the stories. It's what makes a story. And um, a story is based on conflict. So you have your primary 
protagonist up against the antagonist. And that's the primary conflict that makes the story. Conflict makes the story. No conflict, no story. The other part of that, without going off into too much detail, is that every single other character in the story is actually there to reflect one aspect of who the protagonist is. So he could be a loving husband at home, a bully at work, uh, a jerk on the road, whatever it happens to be. But all the people that he comes in contact with in terms of the secondary characters are there to bring out who that character is. And um, the character, this is a real gem here that I learned years ago, character reveals itself through conflict. So whether the characters are supporting him or her uh, on their side or they're going up against them, it's going to show us who that character is by how they interact with everybody else. So hmm. the, the the depth of that goes uh, deep, even psychologically speaking. There's a whole school of thought which I've been taught. It's a shamanic viewpoint that I aspire, I, I, I follow, for lack of better words, and that is that everybody in your life is a reflection of who you are. And so the people who you dislike the most or drive you crazy the most, those are aspects of your shadow. And the whole idea of the hero's journey is to go through that dark facing the shadow. And by overcoming that, you know, there's a whole huge metaphor here. By overcoming that shadow, which in the South American culture is getting swallowed by the jaguar, is how you come out reborn as, you know, uh, as a new person. And this is what happens in the hero's journey. And it's the reason why Star Wars is so popular, because it follows the hero's journey exactly. Um, There's a wonderful interview with George Lucas um, and Joseph Campbell, and uh, if I remember right, it's Bill Maher. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. And they, <laughs> oh, I'm going to quote you on that, you see. No. <laughs> now you just but, got you know, in trouble, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I was oh, no, I was like it was Charlie Rose. <laughs> uh, it was an older guy, and I can see his face. Uh, and, but yeah, I, I think was it was really Charlie classy. Rose. I don't think it was Bill Maher. I remember that interview. That was a great yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful. But, but the, you know, the point of that is that um, Star Wars follows the hero's journey. Harry Potter is the hero's journey. Um, you know, uh, Bill, Lord, of the, Lord Ring. of the Rings, hero's yeah. journey, because it's so deeply embedded in our psyche and in our myth, in our mythology. And that's what drew me to shamanism, was the fact that it's the core of all, every single religion in the world, every single religious and spiritual belief rose out of shamanism, which goes back to the primordial roots of who we are. So these, well, you know, these myths, magic also. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's really interesting, you know, putting it into that context, because you go through all of these different classes and things like that where they talk about the heroes and the protagonists and the villains, but you've kind of put it right into a nutshell of the hero's journey and how the characters surrounding them affect that journey and how they're viewed by the people who are observing. Uh, I, I think that's really a... a Good concept. Um, I know you have some very definite ideas about how energy affects storytelling. You mentioned that a few minutes ago. And that's, I guess, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. 
And I actually heard you speak about this on other radio shows. And I'd love for you to share this with our listeners, uh, what your ideas are about how energy affects storytelling. First off, thank you, because I absolutely love this question. So I, I, did, I mentioned earlier that in a, sh- a worldview of a shaman, absolutely everything is energy. In indigenous cultures, uh, waking, dreaming, or being in a visionary state, they all carry just as much weight. And when they start to blend into each other and cross over to each other uh, in that worldview, that is one definition of what magic is. When you think of um, telling a story or an article, be it fiction or nonfiction, you're painting a picture or you're creating an image or a thought with words, and every word that you use is has energy. Certainly an active verb has more energy than an adjective. An active verb certainly, and this is an old writer's sign, any fiction writer says this a gazillion times, but any uh, adver- uh, 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 verb has energy as opposed to an adverb, which is kind of messy, sloppy, excess, not really hardly ever needed, only on rare occasions. But a verb is active. So the more you have active verbs in your work and less of a passive voice, the more energy your words and your message will have. And you can manipulate that to to uh, manipulate the intensity of the energy of what's going on at that moment, whether it's something deeply technical or whether it's something dramatic, uh, a highly dramatic moment in a piece of fiction. When you're using active verbs and you're not using passive voice, it is literally alive, and it has that energy. Tied in with that is punctuation. Punctuation, I read this years ago in a wonderful book called Pinker's Practical Grammar, that if you look at punctuation in terms of telling you how to breathe, right. then uh, a comma is a s- slows down kind of. Uh, a semicolon uh, is, a, is a stop. A period is just really more of a definitive stop. And, of course, an exclamation point is slamming on the brakes. So if you manipulate punctuation with your active verbs, then you are manipulating the underlying tension. So if you're writing like a highly horrific or dramatic scene and you're using active verbs punctuated with kind of a jerky punctuation where subconsciously the reader's reading it and, and underneath all the reading they're going like, <laughs> you know, they're getting like spun up and, and, and you're doing this sort of underlying manipulation with how you're telling, you're, you're guiding them how to breathe by what they're reading. Yeah, you know, that's a, one of the things that I've paid attention to too is um, – for instance, in action-adventure or not even adventure, you know, if you just want to um, demonstrate that this is something that's happening very quickly, uh, and, and I've found this interesting in writers' groups, you know, when you have some of the novice writers who want to write these marathon sentences and connect mm-hmm. everything with ands, and if you're trying to transmit that, that action, sometimes two and three word sentences are it. He went, he did, you know, did this, things like that. And um, I know one of the masters of doing that is uh, Lee Child with his Jack Reacher books. Mm -hmm. And he does a lot of those real short three-word sentences. And um, I remember in a writer's group once that the person who was reading was 
criticized because it wasn't a full sentence. <laughs> I had to speak up, and I said, yeah, but it communicated that this was something that was happening quick and fast. Yeah, yeah but less is yeah, exactly. always more. Well, I mean, what? sometimes, and then you look at Edgar Allan Poe, how he could paint a, a very, very eerie, detailed scene, and he used actually very long sentences, and when his short sentences came in, they were highlighted all the more because you were used to this almost hypnosis of these beautifully structured sentences. So, yeah, I, I, it just jars you out of it. Exactly, but there's no right or wrong. I mean, if you're trying to create mm-hmm. a mood, certain moods are, are, are better created, like like you were saying, Matt, sort of um, subconsciously, by your mm-hmm. sense by your sentence length a, a short sentence is going to exactly. add tension and urgency and a sure. longer sentence is going to lull the reader into this world you know i mean look at tolkien look at uh, poe look at some of the masters and the reason that their worlds were so vivid was you know they had 30 and 40 word sentences <laughs> in some yeah <laughs> um and you really you knew what it was like to be in the dungeon because just getting through one sentence was like, okay, I'm in a dungeon. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, so that no or screaming, you know, just, let me out of here. <laughs> or let yeah, let me out of the dungeon too. Exactly. <laughs> well, since the shaman is basically someone who's who's thought to control the future and and uh, possibly possess magical powers. When it comes to writing, Matt, do you view the shaman as a mentor who who assists in the development of the characters in the plot, kind of like an actual person or a creation, you know, to get to that actual person or creation in your mind? And if so, aren't some of those qualities really similar to a, to a muse? Uh, the answer to everything is yes, but let me elaborate a little bit. Um <laughs> A shaman is a master, among other things, is a master of perception. They're a master of perception in altered states and in, you know, normal waking consciousness or dreams or visions. They're masters at navigating uh, perception. So when you are a writer, particularly a fiction writer, you are creating... um, you are creating a reality which makes which is magic in and of itself and actually makes you a god of what you're creating. And in the creation of that reality that you're doing, your viewpoint character and or characters are those individuals' perceptions. You have the perception of your protagonist and the world filtered through their eyes. You may or may not, you may only, you know, one of the things about uh, mysteries, the tradition of mysteries being first person because you're getting everything the way that the main character's getting it. You're solving the crime along with the character, the protagonist. You actually become that protagonist as you're reading because you're getting everything filtered through that uh, very subjective, limited first person point of view. You may go to third person and you may shift points of view. You may go omniscient, but you may do what I write in frequently is uh, called uh, third person close where you're in the head of the character but it's all filtered through their perception. So um, a, being a, 
the first perception slash perspective of a shaman is someone who manipulates their perception, how they interpret reality, whatever is being presented to them. That's exactly so what happens than, to your, your characters. Rather than the inspiration of a muse, it's the shaman kind of taking the information that you have there and manipulating it to fit a certain mold. Is that what? Or did you, I miss? You could inter. No, well, you could intertwine. You could say shaman, muse, and subconscious all are really the same thing, because it comes down okay. to learning how to work with your subconscious. Okay. Okay, and yeah, and, and, and all and the stories and the creativity always come from your subconscious. That's correct, and understanding the language of the subconscious, which comes into play in your writing, you know. Uh, you know, the whole funny cliche, there's truth to it in a way, you know, it was a dark and stormy night. Well, okay, it's a cliche, but also it sets the mood. It shows you the viewpoint of the protagonist, all that kind of a thing. I mean, you, you, when the environment of the, when you're getting the environment through the perception of the main character, it's how they see the world. If they're in a good mood, they may see a red sunset, that, you know, literal rose-colored glasses. If they're in a bad mood, they might go, oh, God, you know, this earth is polluted and we're all going to die. I mean, it all depends on the perception, right? That's so and, true. That's that's yeah. really a good point. I've I've never really heard it verbalized like that. Huh. But that that is oh. why people can look at the same thing and you ask five people and get ten impressions. Because yeah. it does all depend on what they're seeing through their eyes and whether they're a positive person who sees the best in everything or in most things, or if they're one of these negative people who is always anticipating what this is going to represent as a problem. It, it also gets you into the whole fun realm of the unreliable narrator. Yes. Right. You know, yes. I, have, well, I have lots of fun with that. Um, Matt, let's go into talking about practicing what you preach now when it comes to shamanic writing, because I'm sure that over the years you've been writing, you've evolved in your approach to storytelling. And what factors do you think contributed to that, and in what ways do you think your techniques changed? Well, that's another great question. Um, and in fact, it's interesting. I ask only good, good questions. Uh, yeah, no, you get a gold star. <laughs> Um, It it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the shaman and the muse is learning truly how to work with your subconscious and realizing how amazing it is and how many things it does that you don't realize. The whole idea um, of the shamanic journey to the underworld and facing your shadow, well, you're you're delving into your subconscious. And um, I've been going into the Amazon for 15 years now doing shamanic plant diets where that's exactly what you do. And you learn when, you, when you're there, uh, your waking world, all your, all your routines are off. So you're waking and you're dreaming and you're sleeping and your visions, they all blur together. And what happens over time is you get physically weaker and the bondages between your conscious and your subconscious become more blurry and more fluid. And then the world's start to cross and you see from all another perspective. So when you learn to understand how you can work your subconscious, then you understand as a writer that hardly anything ever comes out fully formed. It comes in spurts. There are ways to coax it. You know, there are all kinds of tricks you can play on it. Like, okay, if you finish this 
chapter, you can get a cup of coffee. All right? Maybe if you finish these two chapters, you can go to a coffee shop and write and look at the pretty girls. And then you go to the coffee shop and you're like, okay, I've had enough of this. I wouldn't but you be can't looking at the your... pretty girls. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. No, I'd be looking at the hunky guys. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, you, you do a whole little carrot, carrot with a stick with yourself. And there are times when you'll find yourself, you may be stuck, but when you work it the right way, it will, it will come out, it will flow. The most important thing is the flow coming from the muse or the idea or the inspiration. Too many writers get caught up from school and all that where they're editing themselves when the, when the stuff is flowing out. And I tell my, tell my students this for years, you should just puke on the page and don't worry. Don't even worry about punctuation. Just if that flow is happening, go with all that because that's what editing and rewriting and polishing is all about. And you can do that totally at another time. Keep the flow going. That's the most important thing. And that's where people get stuck and think that they have writer's block because they don't understand how to work with the subconscious, which is your best ally. And like I said, when I say subconscious, I'm talking about muse. I'm talking about you want to call it the inner shaman. That's a good one. That would be a book right there. You know, inspiration from the inner shaman. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, it's being a creator and taking charge of the world, which is what you have to do. Just like, uh, right. you know, to apply it to nonfiction, you have to know your subject thoroughly. You have to know it far beyond what you, the words you're going to put down on a page. They have to be infused with that knowledge that you have, or it's just, you know, not going to, not going to hold up. So, yeah, it's going well, to ring hollow. Is, yeah. Well, flow is energy, too. So, yeah. Well, I'm curious about what you did during your travels, Matt. Were you on a quest for material for your book specifically, or, or was it pleasure trips or personal quests or was it actually sort of a combination of all three? The answer, again, is yes, all of the above. And interesting because um, I've always been fascinated with shamanism and medicine, and, and I remember when I was young, very young, reading all of the Carlos Castaneda books and anything along those lines that I read. Right. And so I was writing some horror, and I was researching um, the lycanthropy mythology, Lycanthropy, for anyone who doesn't know, is the werewolf mythology. And from that, I discovered that werewolf and lycanthropy mythologies actually went into shape-shifting. And then I realized that there was a connection between shape-shifting and the visionary plants uh, of the world, but, but primarily of the Amazon, where they have the highest concentration. And when I made that connection, light bulbs started going off in my head. And I started reading about these plants and these shamanic plant diets. And... Um, for me, there was no choice. It was something I had to do, I had to go, and I had to experience directly. Now, um, I took an honors course in anthropology called um, A Forest of Symbols, Orientation and Meaning to South American Indian Religions. And in that course is where I learned the story of Land Without Evil, which that novel came from that. And that, that novel, incidentally, among other things, is all about shamanism. So um, learning from that, one of the big things in anthropology is anthropologists would say, well, these, these Indians would go and they would mix up these plants in the school and they would drink them and they would all act crazy and get weird and stupid. But none of them uh, way back actually would take the stuff. How can you really write about mm -hmm. something unless you experience it directly? So I had to That's experience true. it directly. So not only did I do all the intellectual research and background, 
But I had direct experience, so I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about it. So Yeah, that um, really makes a difference when you have the direct experience on something. There's so much available on the Internet now, but there's really no substitute for actually being immersed in a situation or a location. It's, it's or true. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right, or, yeah, exactly. I can, I can go on all about that on a whole other thing. But, um, but the thing is, um, the whole – I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Obviously, I'm very Uh-oh, passionate call about out, this. Call oh, up the shaman. I, he needs to come in and get you well, back on track. It. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of your other books then. Sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, um, you you had a book. We're we're getting fairly – we still have some time. I'm hoping we'll get into everything we wanted to cover. Um, Yeah. But I I wanted to talk about – briefly about your book, Infinity Zone, A Transcendent Approach to Peak Performance. And that was published in 2012 by Mystic, Inc., it took first place in the International Book Awards, nonfiction, New Age category, and it was a finalist in the San Diego Book Awards. That's pretty prestigious there, Matt. You're doing a good job. And um, you describe the infinity zone as a phenomena that occurs at the nexus of perfect form and motion, which, when utilized properly, can bring balance, power, and control to a number of physical and mental activities actually on multiple levels. Um, That's quite a mouthful. Could you just (laughs) briefly explain in very plain language how this has an impact on our mental and physical endeavors? I'll I'll cut to the chase if I can. My uh, collaborator on that, I I did most of the writing, and my collaborator is a gentleman by the name of Paul Mayberry, who's a Einstein brainiac, but not good uh, at articulating things. And mm-hmm. we had the same we had the same point of view. Paul invented a device called the eight board, and it teaches you how to get a perfect uh, tennis stroke. The essence of the infinity zone is based on the figure eight, which is the best form of motion that there is. If you look around in sports, nature, music, there's chapters on each one of these things. The whole thing of the figure eight and the number eight. One of my favorite examples is the wings of a hummingbird actually move in a figure-eight motion. I didn't realize that. Yes, it's a figure-eight motion. And a hummingbird can move up, down, backwards, and forwards. It can probably move with more speed and precision than any other animal. And it's because it moves in a figure-eight. With his, uh, Paul is, my partner Paul is a tennis coach, and with the eight board, they teach them how to move their bodies so that the movement comes from the hips and into the wrists uh, where you get the maximum power. For myself, among other things, um, I was a martial artist in my younger days. And the whole concept of the most powerful karate punch is to be in what they call a horse stance where your knees are bent and your feet are apart, shoulder width. And then you turn from your hips. And as you're turning from your hips, your, your fist comes out. And it comes out from your side being in a fist upside down and it's turning as it's coming out, along with the hips. So to make a long story short, the movement coming from your feet all the way through your hips and through your arms, when you get to the end, the end of your two knuckles literally cracks like a whip Hmm. because you're using that whole motion. It's a figure-eight motion, and that's where your body gets the maximum power. If you watch golfers 
pitchers, quarterbacks, all those sports, it's a figure eight motion. So um, it, it comes a lot into the world. So there's a gentleman, if you ever heard of him, by the name of Rudolf Steiner, who started the uh, Waldorf schools, among other things. Uh, so there's done a lot of work on him, and it gets into it's a lot of geometry, projective geometry. Um, so it's a really wonderful thing that's backed by fact, mathematical proof. And uh, mm-hmm. anybody who's worked with this eight board, uh, younger players, their playing, tennis playing ability goes up drastically in a very short period of time because they learn how to get maximum speed with the least amount of effort. So it's kind of a whole other energy thing, too, in a way. And it's based on infinity, which is, you know, forever. <laughs> and then <Yeah>. some. <laughs> cool. Well, I'd like to um, know a little bit more about your one, a couple of your other books, too. A Short Walk on the Other Side, which was a follow-up to your book, A Small Dark Room in the Soul, which was also yeah. an award winner. Um, one of your comments in the description section on Amazon aroused my curiosity on that one. You say, how many times have we reacted impulsively only to regret our actions later, often with an apology, something like, I'm sorry I'm not myself today, or I don't know what got into me? Are In such moments of intense feeling, if we are not ourselves at those moments, then who or possibly what are we? Do you actually explore that duality in either of these books? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, the small dark room of the soul is actually an examination of the human shadow. And um, I was very blessed to get a blurb from Ray Bradbury, who was one of my big mentors. Um, He was really wonderful to me. He was like my my writing fairy godfather. Um, And the thing is this. We are all human, so we're all connected as humans, if nothing else. And we have good humans and bad humans. And so if you have something horrific like a John Wayne Gacy or a Jeffrey Dahmer, it's horrible, just horrible, frightening. Every one of us are capable of that because we're all human. Whether it's the furthest thing from your mind ever happening or whatever happens, everybody's capable so I wanted to examine those little dark places that I could find um, in each one of the stories. They're also a bit, in some ways, there's uh, horror has a tradition of being a bit of a morality tale. So uh, I could think there's a little, even though they're twisted, and some are dark humor, some are really, God sees some are more psychological. Um, but um, they're all examinations of, you know, humanity and what's possible. I had fun, too, because some of them have supernatural elements to them. Um, You know, I got to experiment using different points of view, and they were published in a number of different places, so I have those two collections. And the second one, uh, uh, um, A Short Walk to the Other Side, I actually dedicated that to to Ray. Uh, He passed away a few years ago, as everyone knows. And... um, he actually he kicked off the Santa Barbara Writers Conference every year for 37 years, and um, I taught there for 25. And I was very blessed to be with him, and I got to hang out with him and talk and listen to his stories and all the rest of it. He's an amazing inspiration. Uh, cool. The other thing I want to mention before I forget, really quick too, is, is the Writers Conferences uh, coming up. 
Is this an appropriate time to do this? Sure. Uh, yeah, okay, so. and then right after that, I'm going to take the opportunity to tell our listeners how you can reach all of us. So Wonderful. go to okay. it, Matt. Good. Thank <laughs> you. Um, President's Day weekend in San Diego, California, in Mission Valley, is the Southern California Writers' Conference. It's a three-day writers' conference with a number of workshops. So um, anybody who's really interested in getting good feedback and good exposure to what's going on in the industry, uh, this will be the 30th year for the uh, for uh, the Southern California Conference. And uh, anybody who's serious about writing and wants to hang out, come on down. We have a good time and we have a good writing family. And uh, writersconference.com is how they can find it. Okay, great. And and your website, Matt, is www.mattpalamari.com, and that's spelled M-A-T-T, like Tom, P-A, that's P like Paul, A, sorry, I messed that up. Here we go. Again. No, you're good. M-A-T like Tom, T, P like Paul, A, L, L, A, M, A, R, Y. Got it. <laughs> and Perfect. Morgan's website, my website, is www dot morgan st james dash author dot com and that's m o r g a n s t j a m e s and eric's website oh his is an easy one www dot venicedude dot com and yeah, right <laughs> i don't think i have to spell that one venice dude and uh, you'll actually be able to find out more about all of us on those websites. Uh, Eric, do you think we have to spell Venice Dude? And we've still got like. If anybody has seen, I think if anybody has seen the movie Big Lebowski, they know what Venice Dude is all about. <laughs> I lived there for twelve years, and I was a dude. I admit it. So. <laughs> hey, um, I lived walking distance from the Venice Boardwalk for several years, right. and I used to walk down there and see all the crazies. Maybe I saw I you. In, uh, <laughs> I live in Las Vegas now, but I just, in my heart, I can't get rid of that website. I love that. I love that URL. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, both uh, of us are one. California transplants. Yeah, I'm from Boston. I've been out here. I have a I have one last question if we have a little bit of time. Yeah, I'll tell Something you exactly certain... what we've got. We've got six minutes. Oh, we perfect. timed this perfectly. Yeah, we sure Wonderful. did. Sometimes certain characters that I invent have a sort of have a tendency to haunt me. And that late at night or when I'm out to dinner or at a party, always when I'm away from my computer. Do any of your characters sort of burst at the seams like that for you like you know they just can't wait to get themselves on the page it, um, it's a character or sometimes a scene or yeah. I mean, maybe in the back of my head working with a struggling with a particular plot point and sometimes it comes like that and what I've been doing lately because of technology is I grab my cell phone and I dictate it into it and I send myself an email so then that's when a I get great up in the morning, idea that's a good yeah, idea. Yeah, for me. So don't forget it. Uh, I could elaborate on a little something that I should have touched on earlier that may shed a little bit of light on this if I if it's uh, good with you guys. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So 
without trying to get into too much detail, um, there was a philosopher, a mystic by the name of Gurdjieff. He was a, a sort of Euro-Russian, he was Turkish and Armenian, a mystic. And he <laughs> said that we have three, three bodies, an emotional body, an intellectual body, and a moving body. But we all tend to rely on one more than the others. So if we're stuck on a plot point, then we're caught in our intellectual body. We may start getting emotional about it or antsy or whatever. We could be doing something else and we could get stuck in another body, but it's about the energy getting stuck. So the key is to move the energy. So when you're stuck in your intellectual body on a plot point and you start getting a little spun up, the thing to do is to give it a break and go take a walk and do something non-physical. Right. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, physical. Yeah. That's why a lot of writers, they're in the shower and they get their inspiration, or you're out on the walk or you're driving to work. It's, you're, you're doing something that's not in your so much in your intellectual body. It's in your moving body, so you're allowing the energy to move, and then it sort of frees everything else up psychologically. And anytime anybody's stuck on any type of writing, I, I go out and take a walk and forget about it and get moving. You know, anything else yeah. like, like um, g- gardening, things like that that are mindless but thing, those are the things that help you to process. That's one of the keys to working with your subconscious. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it does. I mean, you've just got I to do. get out of being stuck in that move, you know, where you yeah. – it, you know what it's like? It's like trying to remember the name of something, and yes. as hard as you try, the more you try, the farther away it is, and the more you feel like it's right on the tip of your tongue. And if you try to forget about it and you do something else, all of a sudden, it might be in the middle of the night, you pop up in the middle of the bed and say, oh, my God, it was John, <laughs> you know? That, and and I think exactly it yes. kind of works the same way. Um, for me, I find that I get a lot of inspiration in the shower. I don't know, maybe I was in the water in a <laughs> different life or something, but I've gotten so many ideas in the shower. Yeah, because you're doing something, you know, it's maintenance, right? You're not really thinking, and so your mind's freed up to do its thing, you know? Right, well, there's also right. The concept of, there's the concept of biorhythms, too, that our bodies go through a, a natural rhythm every day, and that getting back into your energy flow and stuff like that, mm-hmm. where we have an emotional state every every day. We have an intellectual state every day, and we have a physical state. And right. when if if we don't sort of honor those times, and everybody's different, it's not eight eight eight. But yeah, the, you you do need to give your body in a twenty four hour period its space to cycle through the biorhythms of life. Or otherwise, you do get stagnant. You get stagnant either intellectually or physically, um, or you know emotionally. And I, I think that is something that also has come from Carlos Castaneda and and, and some of the other um, sort of shaman yogi uh, <laughs> people that have come before us, or at least in the radio. Yeah, well, you know this. Yeah. This has been great, Matt. You've been a wonderful guest. You, you've touched Thank on you. things that we've never gotten into before, and I would bet that a lot of the listeners have, have really not thought about before. And that's right. sort of what this show is all about. It's, it's about 
either when Eric, Denny, and I are the hosts and we don't have a guest, <clears throat> or when we do have a guest, it's about bringing usable information to our listeners, whether they're aspiring writers or published writers. It doesn't matter because we try to make the content of every show something that you can use. So our next show will be on January 27th, same time, and just watch social media for the postings or go to the Writer's Tricks of the Trade radio.blogspot.com website. And we're going to say goodnight now because we have run out of time. Okay, good night, everybody. Good night, and thank you so much for having me. Good night. Yeah, it was enjoyable.